You're listening to FemWonk, a podcast about inclusion, policy, politics, and current affairs. I'm your host, Katie Davey. Thanks for tuning in. I think this has been a long-anticipated conversation. Uh, It'll be our first episode where we actually talk about the impacts of COVID-19. And I'm really excited to be joined today by Anna Dewar-Gully, the co-CEO of Title Equality. We're going to dive into really some of the things that we've been seeing on COVID-19 and the response from both cracks in the systems to policy challenges to policy innovations and everything in between. So without further ado, let's just get started. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Katie. I really want to hear just first your thoughts on the really the cracks that we've seen revealed by COVID-19 and the stress that they've um, or that COVID-19 rather has put on the system. What uh, what are some that you're most concerned with? So I think pretty early on in the crisis, something that became really apparent to me because of community work uh, that I was doing here in Scarborough Southwest uh, and uh, the east end of Toronto was just how uh, horrendous the hunger problem was uh, in the city. And as I've learned subsequently across the country, with people obviously losing jobs, the percentage of people that were living paycheck to paycheck, the nature of the disruption, uh, it became really apparent uh, because in my neighborhood, there was a closed food bank, a volunteer run food bank that shut down um, unexpectedly at the very beginning uh, of the the lockdown procedures. And other groups started to step in on the ground to to try to fill in that void. Just how big and complex the problem that specifically was, uh, was the the thing that I've spent a a good chunk of my attention focused on in the last number number of weeks. I definitely um, have seen that as well. And I, I found it shocking. You know, you see some of these photos shared on social media of these like big stacks of potatoes um, or things like that, that farmers basically have no way to get to market. Yet we have all of these communities that are experiencing significant food scarcity. So, you know, I think that is it shows a, a bit of, you know, a struggle with our overall kind of supply chain and supply chains rather and food systems. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting opportunity to innovate and kind of connect some of those, you know, those farmers or those folks with communities. And I actually think, I honestly don't, I, I remember seeing it, but just recently, I think maybe the federal government announced something like that of kind of stepping in to, to try to provide that support, which, you know, I think is a really interesting and again, potentially an innovative solution that we might see hopefully moving forward in the future. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's revealed itself, you know, you asked about kind of cracks. For me, it's uh, it's illuminated a crack in the food security kind of uh, world writ large uh, in Canada. Um, you know, looking at Toronto as an example, um, unfortunately, there's no sort of political lead on food. Uh, similarly, there's no political lead on food uh, provincially either. And much of that coordination and organization was left to uh, the charitable sector, uh, the larger charities. There, there has been some coordination, for example, in the city of Toronto with a sort of an emergency food table. But my, my realization, uh, which came because we had a closed food bank, an incredibly active food bank, and a grassroots organization here that was stepping in trying to fill in that gap, uh, was just how absent uh, kind of accountable political leadership was in this crisis around food. And in, in my view, that was a real reason that it took weeks and weeks to get a good supply of food to the ground. 
And in Toronto initially, I think there was somewhere between 40 and 70% of food programs were closed because so many of them were volunteer led. I think what it really illuminated for me was that we're over-reliant in terms of food security on both the corporate sector, you know, the providers of food, um, and also on, um, on our charitable organizations, our, our food banks, et cetera, um, and that we should not be putting charitable organizations in charge in the middle of a crisis because that is a massive account accountability gap. And if there's a food problem, where do you go? What do you do? Um, and that's certainly a problem that we saw on the ground here. Yeah, definitely. And I think of the linkages as well. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of the charitable sector. In many cases, the charitable sector also operates, um, you know, homeless shelters and uh, emergency housing as well. And in this particular case, we've seen uh, such a strain put on those resources as well, just based solely on the fact that they um, don't have the space to do social distancing, really, like at the very basic level. Um, but I think the other piece too, and, and I actually just, um, just wrote a piece from the New Brunswick perspective on the inadequacies of social assistance and how we've really seen based on both kind of the CERB and that essentially saying, you know, you need $2,000 a month to meet your basic needs. And then looking at social assistance programs really across the country that do not share that same message, right? That the, you know, folks are, in, in the New Brunswick case, a single person gets only $538 a month, which is, you know, 28% or something like that of the, of the CERB amount. So, you know, I think those have been really interesting kind of <laughs> almost like philosophical questions, right? Like, what do we mean by basic need? And what do we mean by needing basic and are we, and are we classifying groups of people in our societies having less basic needs than others? which is something that I think this crisis has truly exposed. I mean, I don't know if I mentioned to you on the phone that my last day job was as manager of strategic planning and social assistance in Ontario and in Toronto. So in the Toronto delivery infrastructure, which is a huge social assistance delivery infrastructure functionally delivering Ontario works uh, in the city of Toronto. And, you know, we were having and working on that basic income pilot uh, back when I was uh, there. Um, and obviously had, you know, there was great hope for. Um, and, you know, as a strategist in that system, you know, it was always uh, striking to me um, what, we, what we saw the point of social assistance as being. Like if you, when I think of an organization, I often think about like if there was a single sentence or two sentences that described an organization's purpose, what would it be here? And so when I first arrived uh, at, you know, at social assistance, uh, employment and social services in the city of Toronto, that sentence was fastest route to employment, which was a sentence that had basically existed in Ontario since Paris was in government and really hadn't functionally changed. Um, and so that entire infrastructure is created not necessarily to provide social support uh, to help elevate people from, from, from poverty, uh, but to get them a job and the kind of jobs that are on offer, et cetera, are not necessarily bringing someone out of poverty. I was working on a food security project. I was delivering a box of food uh, to a neighbor who was in need. And uh, she was explaining to me what a difficult situation and predicament she was in from a, from a hunger perspective for her family. And so I guided her to apply for OW's uh, discretionary benefit. And I was horrified just to discover that it was actually a discretionary benefit. It was, you know, that, that you have to persuade a caseworker uh, to believe that you're entitled to that benefit. You know, there's no guarantee with a discretionary benefit. And our system is rife with really complex human dynamics uh, in terms of 
the, the caseworker client relationship. It's something that I found was a big chunk of my kind of change work when I worked there. But for this woman who's living at the end of my street, literally like a block and a half from my house is living in poverty. Uh, she She's being forced to call the caseworker if she can find the caseworker and plead her case for needing extra money for food in a time when everyone's price, price gouging. You know, the cost of food is rising as she had lost an ad hoc source of income. And I'm thinking this is just totally ass backwards. Like we should be helping the most vulnerable people first. And it, it just told me, it, it told me a lot about just how political some of these decisions have been um, and how I really think they cannot be in the future. You know, I think that I, I would just really genuinely hope um, that we learn some very critical lessons about how vulnerabilities uh, in a disease event like this are actually vulnerabilities for all of us. You know, people that are hungry gather, you know, like this food security initiative I was working for, you know, they were going to deliver nine boxes of Toronto, of Toronto community housing uh, apartment building and 200 people swarmed the volunteer trying to get that food. In a public health crisis, that's a, that's a public health risk, you know, and if we're not thinking carefully about how do we serve vulnerable people who are going to be in the most desperate, desperate straits in a situation like this. You know, we're not making policy decisions, making communication decisions, like thinking about when we talk, you know, public health messaging, are we adding, are you hungry, call 211 to every single public health message, for example. Why aren't we doing that? You know, and I, and I, I just really hope policymakers all over this country are themselves seeing some of these cracks taking a note or two and thinking about how to swiftly, you know, make note of this in future pandemic plans and disaster planning, you know, in emergency response plans, uh, because this is something that we should and can certainly learn from. No, absolutely. And I think that's what, you know, we've seen in so many cases is none of these cracks that we are seeing are new. They've existed. We just have decided not to solve them and not to you know, there hasn't been political will in many cases and and or there have been, and I think it's probably a mix of both, a, a philosophical kind of underpinning behind how some of these programs have been developed and, and there just hasn't been any desire to change what that, you know, to update it, to be quite frank, for a 21st century program. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the one of the great things has been that we've now seen what is possible, right? We've now seen that you can create a program that is an amazing user experience, supports people when they need support very quickly, and again is, you know, like you said, has has none of the shame, has none of the stigma attached, yeah. but now we know what's possible, right? Okay. So, you know, we hear of lots of folks talking about rebuilding and things like that, but you know, it can't just probably break it down 100%. Well, like, yeah, break it down. But also it can't just yeah. be about, you know, rebuilding in our traditional sense of like, 100%. okay, let's do roads and buildings. Now it has to yeah. be how do we fix our social safety net to ensure that these cracks don't exist anymore. And also to adapt to the new cracks that are going to be created from this really, you know, unprecedented of moment in time a hundred percent i mean i think that the the gulf uh, that's been created as a result of this crisis that's still being created today in terms of those who have and those who do not have uh, in our society i think is 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 becoming you know a cavern at the moment it's huge um and that that gap that was already too large is widening rapidly as a result of this crisis and i think if there was ever a time and an imperative to completely reimagine our social safety net this is the time i could not agree with you more um i think 
it's it's so amazing to me that we spent like I have no idea how long I'd hate to guess and I'd hate to actually know how long we've spent trying to build the case for basic income in Ontario. I imagine it goes back decades and decades. Well, yeah, well, Manitoba had a pilot in the 70s, so. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And I mean, that was my, my, my memory was that these conversations have been happening, you know, since union movements really took hold in various ways. And um, like, you know, it's, it's crazy to me that we could get it done in 10 days. I mean, that just says so much about how we put off uh, justice for people in our society. Uh, and I think we all need to look ourselves in the eye and ask ourselves why that is, why we allowed that to go on. And I, you know, I can tell you, if you just think about a, a typical social assistance delivery system, like a municipality like Toronto or Ottawa or Vancouver or Montreal, the amount of human resources that go to confirming that you're still poor on a daily basis. Are you still poor? You know, have you done anything to get that that job? Have you got a job totally not connected to your skill set, desire set, et cetera? You know, so much of that infrastructure is designed to make shame and and operated to make shame. It is not designed to move people from poverty to prosperity. And you know, I think we need to really look ourselves in the mirror as a society and ask ourselves, is that the society we want to be, or do we want to be something much, much better in the future? And I think CERB is a great proof case, you know, that it's possible and helpful um, and essential. And, uh, you know, I just, I just hope that, that, that smart, you know, policymakers all over the country can, you know, not let this good crisis go to waste, as they say. You know? Yes. And many have been saying that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've raised a couple of points. So you brought up basic income, which is one of my favorite topics. So happy that you did that. Um, but I think, what has been so interesting and it really relates to this conversation is one, so many people have just spent all of their time, like smart policy people spending all of their time these last few weeks telling us why a basic income is not what we should consider and what we should move forward um, on. But I've also been really um, interested to hear a number, a fair number at this point, I think there's three or four different premiers who have basically said CERB um, is not allowing them to kind of restart their economy. Um, obviously, for, for me, being from New Brunswick, I've been seeing the comments from the Premier of New Brunswick saying this, but it is so mind-boggling to me that anybody could argue that, you know, $2,000 a month, which if you break it down is, you know, it obviously it's only available for four months, so that would be 8000 8, over four months, but in an annual salary term, that's 24000 and in an hourly salary term, it's about 12-ish dollars an hour. And it if, pays for about half of an apartment in, in the city of Toronto. You know? Well, exactly, <laughs> and so if, if the jobs that you need filled are not providing higher economic, um, you know, prospects than that, you know, you, like you've said, you have to look yourself in the mirror, right? Like if you're just asking somebody to, you know, not, and it's not even like, it again, it, it's this whole argument of shame and shaming people for, you know, taking CERB as an option rather than going and, you know, working in a fish plant or working in an agriculture sector, which again, they're, they're good jobs and people, um, you know, lots of people do do them and want to do them. But you know, what benefit is it to shame people for not doing those jobs, right? Like, not, it's... Only, not only what benefit, uh, what is the cost and consequence of thinking like that? So, you know, I'm going to get the stats wrong because it's been a while since I looked at them, but I'm going to give you a kind of like a rough 
explanation of how the look of social assistance of who's on social assistance has changed since the 90s since Harris you know was in office in Ontario uh, and that that statement of fastest route to employment really came to the fore uh, in, in welfare um, and I'm sure there was a there was something that preceded that that probably wasn't much better but I can tell you that those massive cuts that happened in the 90s really reshaped welfare in Ontario and that policy legacy lives in those systems so concretely I, like I felt like I was walking around in the 90s when I worked it and you know, the cost of that is in the 90s when we had mostly short-term labor disruptions and a much more traditional looking economy, much less of a knowledge economy. You know, unemployment, being on welfare looked like nine months on, on the caseload. And today it looks like somewhere between 48 and 64 months, okay? And, and that's because poverty is, you know, getting more and more entrenched over time. And our social supports are getting more and more underfunded over time. And the cost of living is going up. And so the depth of poverty the, what it takes to take a job and allow yourself to live at the same resource capacity as if you're on OW, which is, I mean, if you're a single, it's absolutely impossible to survive. And if you're a family, you can maybe just, just about scoop by, maybe if you have housing, it's not horrendously high rent, you know, um, but, but, you know, when you're saying to someone, for example, go get an hourly job as a bus driver with your master's degree, which I've literally been in case meetings and heard, um, you know, um, and that person goes and has no insurance, no access to benefits, no access to all of these sorts of things that being on a social assistance system provides. They're actually more poor uh, when that transaction occurs. There are perverse incentives. You just, you know, are, are, it's like, it's just, it's, it's ass backwards. And the consequence of that is that our bill for social assistance has radically risen massively you know the consequences of entrenched poverty which are chronic disease and all sorts of other things that find their way into being paid for by the public purse have risen exponentially i mean you look at um in the states you know the more much more overt coverage about you know how people from uh racialized backgrounds are suffering more from covid and dying more from covid you know there 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 are some medical arguments about why that might be, but there's absolutely no doubt that there's social determinants of health at play. And those social determinants of health are leading to acute illness and to high levels of mortality. And we have those same social determinants of health in this country. And poverty is an absolutely horrendous social determinant of health. If you're poor, you're very likely to also become sick, to become chronically ill, and to have an enormously expensive healthcare journey through our system. And so, you know, it's like, it's just what's it's such a false economy it's it's just such a false economy giving people a chance to breathe giving people a chance to have security and not be afraid of how to feed themselves is a prosperity generator it is not a prosperity detractor and i would you know challenge any single leader of any province in ontario to walk into a social assistance system to sit with clients for the day to hear the stories about how these systems have perverted their lives and their opportunities and to come and give me a really solid argument that that is a prosperity generator because they will i mean i i couldn't get through those sorts of experiences without tears in my day so i would i would challenge them to just you know be bold with their arguments and go and see if they can really feel those arguments on the ground because they just do not hold water they really don't absolutely could not agree more i think the other piece too like you mentioned um and yeah, I, this wasn't intended to be an entire conversation about social assistance, but it just, it's so clear what the challenges are. But you mentioned kind of the transition, like the, the benefits and how they would shift. So 
I think that's a perfect example too of what has happened in some provinces um, with CERB. So if a person was accessing social assistance and they were also accessing employment opportunities, um, you know, obviously there are program flaws with clawbacks and all that stuff, but um, you know, if they lost their employment, they're still eligible for the CERB. Um, however, if they are to transition entirely over to that program rather than social assistance, then they lose their, you know, health coverage. They lose all of these other programs. They lose, you know, their employment and training um, opportunities that they're hopefully getting through um, the program and all of these other pieces too. And, you know, and one maybe of the more importantly, they start the, the really hideously uh, bureaucratic journey of reapplying and reconnecting with a caseworker and once again pleading their case for being legitimately poor at the end of that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Over and over again arduous journey and not a fast one. Absolutely. Um, I think though I've been surprised actually that you haven't really or we haven't really heard much about the impact as well of folks um, leaving their employment, uh, you know, their attachment to employment and thus their attachment to benefits. Um, that has been something that has been really, I've been thinking a lot about that. And again, the kind of interlinking with the whole conversation around pharmacare that's been happening over the last, or very strongly over the last few years. Um, so yeah, I, I'd be interested to see uh, when and how that discussion starts kind of ramping up because it's a, it's a huge one, right? We're seeing, you know, the labor I force. I think this is probably a Maslow's hierarchy of needs situation. I'm sure totally. are happening, but I think maybe the issue of hunger and the immediacy of it has trumped some of that discourse. Um, I also think uh, many of the places where you would go other than for prescription drugs um, uh, to use benefits at this point in time are not open and accessible like dental offices, et cetera, you know, except for emergencies and what have you. So I think to some degree that's a conversation postponed, not a conversation that's actually gone away. Um, and I think it takes time. I mean, I know there's a lot of conversation out of the states about the consequences of that. You know, the, the uninsured folks that are now unable to get their diabetic, you know, prescriptions, et cetera, chronic care, uh, which, you know, is always a problem in the states from a policy perspective and a, a human perspective um, that is clearly massively increased as a result um, of the crisis. So I'm sure we're not far behind in that regard. I think, thank God, we have a slightly healthier social safety net when it comes to those sorts of uh, benefit. Definitely. Um, so we talked a little bit about obviously, you know, kind of the overnight change with the introduction of the CERB and how that has been definitely positive and there have been lots of positive learnings. Um, what other kind of overnight shifts have you observed that, you know, that are things that people have maybe been working on for years and years and years? Um, and yeah, tell me a bit more about some of the positive things that you've seen and, and what things you hope actually do stick coming from this. Um, it's interesting. I think I've loved, I'm not sure that this is a, this is a, this is a policy thing. In fact, I'm not sure yet, um, that I've stumbled upon a kind of a policy win <laughs> per se, um, probably because I'm naturally, uh, a student of inequality. And so I think what I'm looking for, um, is opportunities to see and fix inequality in this crisis. And I think my lens is is attuned to that right now, just given the nature of this crisis. What I would say is on a community level, I have been thrilled uh, to see um, what may have been improbable collaborations happening uh, that have changed the shape of communities uh, 
change support infrastructure and communities virtually overnight. And I think, again, that's something that I hope people can leverage and build on. Um, I mean, it, in some ways, some of these unnatural collaborations have come out of hardships. Um, they've come out of, you know, infrastructure being down, uh, food supports being down, um, domestic violence, uh, you know, infrastructure being under uh, under resourced at a difficult time. Uh, but they've allowed for a conversation to rise above the noise in the middle of the crisis and to bring attention to some of these issues. Have we solved those issues? Have we solidified what we've learned? Have we put those into plans? Not yet. So I'm like so hesitant to call anything a kind of gold standard or a win until like I've actually seen what were the unintended or unanticipated consequences of some of these decisions. And I really think for most decision making in this regard, it's pretty early days to make those calls. I think you know, what's, what's clear are the opportunities and the gaps um, to me. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I actually was on, um, you know, one of the 1000 webinars that are happening these days. Uh, yesterday, that was talking about um, uh, digital government and um, some of the kind of, yeah, some of the things we've seen in the last few months on kind of the digital government movement. And one of the speakers basically said something very similar, which was, we're not doing innovative digital government right now, we're using the tools that we have had we're just actually now using them and we're using them better, but we're not innovating and we're not doing anything, you know, necessarily remarkable. We're just doing, we're using what we've always used. We're, you know, using new or the same code, the same, you know, whether it's Zoom or otherwise. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting um, comment that really stuck with me. And it's so true. Like so, so much of what we're seeing is like I said, just something that people have been asking for for years and decades yeah. in some cases just actually come to fruition. Um, but I think, you know, the maybe again, positive angle to that is now we have a new starting point as we move towards recovery. Um, so, yeah. I, and I think what is often a reality in large government systems, which is, um, you know, inertia and a fear of change. Um, this crisis has forced many folks uh, to get over some of that um, or to get through it anyways for the time being. I think in many cases that didn't happen fast enough. Uh, but that, you know, it was enough that people were pushed out of comfort zones, pushed out of ways of doing things. And, you know, as a person that's done a lot of strategic change work in large systems, I can tell you that that's always your biggest barrier. It's not the idea and it's not necessarily even the people. It's, um, it's a rhetoric about what can and can't be done. That is often the, the biggest enemy to change. And so if something has been done, you know, you know, if we've achieved something, I think that that is a leg to stand on that most change initiatives struggle to get off the ground. Um, and I do hope people, you know, that are clever and crafty will will build on those. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I've, um, you know, noticed, and I think a lot of people have noticed is that we're actually both unfortunately, unfortunately, having a semi meaningful conversation around gender. Um, because the impacts, the gendered impacts have been just so stark, um, mm -hmm. particularly the economic uh, gendered impacts. So I'd love uh, to know kind of your thoughts from your perspective, particularly with title equality, um, on, you know, how we keep that momentum going and how we actually leverage a meaningful and not kind of, you know, this very tokenistic gender equality conversation that has been happening um, into some of 
again, some of these more meaningful change op opportunities as we come out of this. 100%. So I would say, so just to explain to your listeners, title equality, we describe ourselves as a, as a strategy firm or an equality-focused strategy firm at the intersection between social change and diversity and inclusion. Um, and, you know, I think if there's one principle that we live by in the design of all of our work, it's about trying to find ways to bring lived experiences to the table in the development of strategy and policy, um, which is underdone despite all of our rhetoric about consultation. Um, and, you know, there is so much to be gleaned and learned and studied and uncovered in terms of opportunities uh, from those folks that have experienced gender inequities in this crisis. So it's not good enough for us, I think, as a society at this point in our trajectory to simply say, like we see that racialized uh, PSWs were less protected than other folks in our healthcare system. Um, who are largely women, and largely racialized. It, it's not okay for us just to note that and for us to stop there and not pursue that and go to those folks and ask them exactly what happened, exactly how the system crumbled and did not come to their defense, exactly uh, what they tried to say and to whom and how and what we need to do differently uh, to protect them in the future. You know, um, the solutions are in those experiences and there's absolutely no doubt about it. I think there's nothing that um, my, my business partner, Kristen, and I get more joy of than identifying a problem that's always been a problem, but hearing from a person that's experienced the problem that they have an idea for how to fix it. And it's a viable, totally pragmatic, reasonable idea. Uh, great idea, you know? And I, I think all over this country, whether it's, you know, going and talking to women that experience domestic violence in this situation, and were unable to get the help they need when they needed it, you know, um, and ultimately got help and they'll have a moment to reflect over, you know, months and years to come um, and to think about what should have been in place and what could have been in place and for us to do that, to put those things in place. Um, whether it's talking to PSWs, to frontline nursing staff who are largely, you know, a large percentage of them are women. Um, whether it's talking to female entrepreneurs who did not get the kinds of support packages that they needed uh, off the bat and are still not getting because of where they're represented in our economy and how our supports were rolled out. Um, there are gender equity opportunities aplenty that are surfacing as a result of this crisis. Um, I, I just really hope that we can move beyond rhetoric to listening. There's so much listening to be done, um, both in policy making and in solution design. Um, I can imagine that my organization will, could spend the next 10 years learning from just those experiences um, and trying to share those learnings and, and uh, you know, distill them into something that's actionable and changeable of which I know, you know, just off of the top of my head and off of the brief brushes with those sorts of issues in the last couple of weeks, last few weeks, um, there are just so many things that we can make better and that's what excites me about about those reflections and those opportunities there's just and so much of it is not about money and resource it's just about organization and knowing naming a problem and fixing it you know um so that's that's my my plea is can we can we ask the people that experience the inequities what happened and what they would do differently in the future I think that's such an amazing call to action for folks listening, particularly those in, again, some of these spaces, these decision-making spaces. Uh, I think it's a practice that we can all take away, whether, again, regardless if it's in our everyday life, if it's in these roles that we do have this power. Um, I think that it's 
yeah, I think you're, you're so bang on. It provides this tremendous opportunity to actually really meaningfully engage with people um, and, and then move forward quickly. Thanks so much for sticking with us. I want to thank our sponsor, Glass Sky. Glass Sky works to help the next generation of leaders make the most of their talents and contributions to society and the workplace in powerful ways. They work with progressive employers who want to embrace diversity and gain a deeper understanding of the changes they are facing as their leadership profiles rapidly shift to one of millennial and increasingly female. Visit their website, glassguy.org, to learn more. And if you liked this episode, share it. You can connect with us on social media at Femwalk, and I'll see you next time.